All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. I've entitled uh, this sermon, Pondering the Things of God. Luke 2, 15 through 20, hear now the word of God. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we look at a, an event like this in the scriptures and we see a a narrative. We see a story. We do pray that we would not look at it merely as a story, but we recognize that there are deep things happening here, rich things that you have deemed fit to record in your word. So we do pray, Holy Spirit, that as you've inspired these words, you would give us the wisdom to see the beauty of them, what they tell us about our triune Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and how we ought to live our lives, how we ought to respond to such things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Speaking of uh, responding, I think responding to the things of God can be interesting, it can be fascinating, and sometimes a confusing enterprise. In certain circles, I don't know if you realize this, it's asserted that, you know, reactions that we have, say, at a, in a worship service, primarily in the worship service, should be very uniform. For example, uh, some people would say, well, it's okay to raise your hands, it's okay to kneel, it's okay to shout amen, so long as everybody does it. I mean, I, you know, there are good people who hold this position, and... Uh, I haven't really gotten there yet myself. Because the argument goes, well, look, we're all one body, so we should respond as a body. But, as the Apostle Paul argues, bodies have different parts. So it seems reasonable that different parts of the body might respond differently to different things. My, my, uh, my eyes have a different response to a bright light than my ears. So, so I don't think that we should expect to all respond the same way in a worship service where we're hearing the things of God, praying the things of God, singing the things of God. Now, of course, even if what you're doing is biblical, it can be distracting. I mean, I think, for example, I think it's very biblical to say amen. I mean, we see it in 1 Corinthians 14, 
you know, the person coming in, it's a church service, how can they say the amen if they don't understand what's going on? Now, whether that's everybody saying amen or a spontaneous amen, it doesn't really say. Nonetheless, if you're going to say amen every single time you're moved, that could become distracting. Limit your amens. Amen to that, okay. But that was just a softball, wasn't it? There you go. So, becoming a distraction, you know, notwithstanding, I have to say I, I find it enjoyable and biblical in I, when I'm in worship to observe different responses to worship. I mean, in this passage we're looking at today, we see a number of responses. We see marvel, we see praise, we see glory, we see ponder. We see a bunch of different responses to the things of God. Now, I remember as a younger pastor... I would get a little discouraged when our worshipers seemed a bit flat, lacking, you know, the, the demonstrative element. I, I, I felt like there needs to be a little more action here. You know, it's just like, wow, the frozen chosen. I remember one man, an elder at that, who was actually is to this day a good friend of mine, no longer lives in California, he would look at the words on the screen. We didn't have these screens. We had just an overhead, you know. He'd look at it, and, and he'd be singing, but he seemed so, like, stoic, like almost just unmoved by, by the words or by the music or by the, the worship around him. So I asked him about it one day. I'm like, so what? What's up? And uh, I have to say, his answer was really illuminating. Now, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But right now, I think as we look at the various responses in this passage to the message of Christ, we're going to see this whole idea of what, where our minds might go or how we should respond to the things of God. Now, let me give a quick review so we are reminded where we're at, because Luke kind of has us moving back and forth, almost like a, a movie that's got various plots, or a miniseries, where we're here for a while, now we're there, now we're here. He opens with the, the gospel, and we, we start off with the parents of John the Baptist, right? And then from John the Baptist, we have Gabriel talking to Mary, and from Gabriel talking to Mary, we're back, we're, now we're shifting to Mary, visiting Elizabeth. And there we're back to the birth of John the Baptist. Then we're at the birth of Jesus. So we're moving back and forth, mainly between what's going on with John the Baptist and his parents and what's going on with Mary and the baby Jesus. But even when we get to the birth of Christ, that's kind of multifaceted. That's, it's approached in a number of different ways. We have this relocation, right, from Galilee to Bethlehem because of a, of a census. Then we have the shepherds in a field. All of a sudden we're looking at shepherds in a field. And an angel talking to them. And then the angel makes this announcement. And then, and then there's a, a host, the heavenly host, praising. And then they're told there's going to be a sign, there's going to be a baby. And that's kind of where we're left. That brings us up to date. Okay, they, this was all happening. And the heavenly host leaves 
And here we are, verse 15. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. I like, and I hope you do this too, when you're reading the Bible, especially when you're reading like narratives, like stories in the Bible, which, you know, Genesis, Exodus, the Gospels. It's a little harder when you get to Romans, which what they call that didactic, right? That's kind of more doctrinal instruction. Here we have something you can make a movie about, right? Which they have. Now, I can't really say how long the angels were there. This heavenly host, right? You're in that field. The angel's there, then there's a heavenly host, and they're breaking into, into song. Doesn't say they were there for an hour or two hours, and so I'm not sure how long they were there. But since when the Bible describes heavenly worship, it's a pretty intense event. You know, they, uh, we see it in Isaiah chapter 6, where the, the very thresholds of the foundation are shaken. You know, it'd be a, a worship where... The walls are moving, right? It's that kind of thing when the, when the heavenly host worships. I'm guessing in that field at night with those shepherds, it's pretty raucous, right? It was loud, amazing. And I'm also guessing when we read that they left, that it got really, really quiet. Now the attention moves away. You know, I can't, I'd imagine they're all looking at this heavenly host. Now the attention turns to one another. Now they're looking at each other. Now the passage, nowhere in the passage do we see that they are commanded to go to Bethlehem. They were just told what they would find if they went to Bethlehem. I suppose one of them could have said, you know what, why don't you guys go to Bethlehem? I'm going to stay here. After all, God is everywhere, and this field is my church. I really connect with God here in the field, so you guys go off and see the baby. Pretty sure none of them did that, but one of them could have, right? One of them could, look at I don't really want to make the trip. It's early, you know, my chariot needs a tune-up, not really feeling it. Sometimes, sometimes, geographical locations are significant. It may be true, and matter of fact, it is certainly true that the church is not a building. I mean, I mean I, that, that should be obvious. The church is not a building. But let's not take that too far because the church is a gathering. We read in Psalm 50, God saying, gather my saints together unto me. I want them all here. Those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice and the heavens shall declare his righteousness for God is judge himself. It's just one of many places we see where God's going, look at I want my people here. I want my people together. My wife and I have children, four children. Wherever they are, there are children. Wherever they go, there are children. 
But tonight, they're all going to sit around the table with us. There are times when it's just a glorious thing, a joyous thing, and a profitable and beneficial thing to have everybody together at the table. That's what families do. That's what they ought to do. The families that do that, I don't think they ever will regret it. But that's what God is saying he wants us to do. Gather together, gather at the table together. You see, though it is true that God is present everywhere, there are certain events where his presence, the presence of God, is more deeply conveyed. It's more deeply known. It's more deeply identifiable. I don't, time doesn't allow me at this point, but I've done it before, to make the argument, although it's a convincing argument, that a gathering, a gathering like we have right now where the word is preached, where the sacraments are administered, is a place where God is more deeply known, understood, and identified. I would argue that you will, ne- you will never come as close, if you will, to Christ as when those elements come before you in a few minutes. That is what he instituted when he knew physically he would be gone. On that night in which he was betrayed, when he knew his earthly ministry was coming to an end, what did he do? He instituted the Lord's Supper. There's something unique about that. Communion, that word, right? Who are we communing with? We are communing with God, and who else? One another. That's the family meal. Writing of Christ, the author of Hebrews explains in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and this is my point here, I, this is Jesus talking, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. By the way, that word congregation is ecclesia. Anybody know what that is usually, how that usually is translated? The ecclesia, the church. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of your congregation. I will sing your praises. That's a fascinating passage. We may wish to reflect upon who actually is leading our worship. Psalm 22, 3, we read, But thou art holy, talking about obviously God, O thou inhabitest the praises of Israel. Some of your versions will say, say that God is enthroned upon the praises of Israel. He inhabits the praises of his people. John Calvin taught this. I thought it was very ministerial to me. I hope it is to you. He wrote it, And it is a truth which may serve as a most powerful stimulant and may lead us most fervently to praise God when we hear that Christ leads our songs and is the chief composer of our hymns. Friends, we may not be visiting a manger when we gather together, but we will never come as close as we do when the word is preached and the elements come before us. And recognize this, 
that those words we see translated when they say, let's go see this thing, it's not a really a great translation. Literally, it is, let us see the word. Let us see the word. See, they were responding, the shepherds were responding to the word of the Lord. It's kind of like going, okay, we've been told something here. Let's go look at it. Similarly, we are called to respond to the word, to the words of God. And finally, on this verse, even if one of the shepherds, say one of the shepherds were kind of like, yeah, not into it. They said to one another, let's go see this thing. Like they looked around. And so even if one of them was a little hesitant, it would help that somebody said, hey, let's go. Come on, let's go. I mean, I know, I realize some of us are so stubborn, you could say let's go all day long and you're never going to change your mind. But I guess my question for you is, is there anybody that you're saying, let's go? Hey, let's go to church. I'll pick you up. Or, in an, you know, maybe it's the flip side. Is there anybody, do you have anybody, because our elders try to do this. We have a list of everybody in the church, and we get together and we're like, where is everybody? Is there anybody other than your elder who will say it to you if for some reason you're not here? Are, are you known well enough in this communion that your absence would be recognized by anybody? Right? Because we should know each other. We need to know each other. And they came with haste, verse 16, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So they didn't just go. I mean, Luke goes out of his way to indicate that they made haste. Now, I, I'm looking at the next words I, I wrote here, and when I write a sermon, uh, just so you all know, I, I'm writing it to myself first, because I'm just, I'm, it's, one, it's one of us. Sometimes I'll write sermons and I'll, I'll change the yous to we's. I'll go through the whole thing and it's, it's like, it's all of us. And sometimes, you know, I have to say, I've been doing this for a long time. You get in the car on Sunday morning, you're a little bit tired, and you got this kind of slow, lackluster quiet, unenthused trip to church. You're not like going, hey, let's make haste. Well, let me tell you, and I'm not, I don't want you to get more guilty than you already are. But if that's the case, there is something wrong. Right? And maybe the problem is with you, Maybe the problems with church. I'm guessing it's just a combination of both that would kind of creep into us and have us not be so excited about what should be the greatest hour and a half of our week. These shepherds, they just left a pretty astonishing concert. Like, how are you going to match the heavenly host praising God? And they left it, right, to do what? I mean, let's, let's get back to the reality of the event, right? They left it to go look at a baby. I like babies as much as the next guy. 
Not as much as the next woman, but as much as the next guy. But really, we're going to go and look at a baby? I mean, you think about this. I mean, that's the reality of the event, right? There is a baby in a feeding trough. Go look at it. Now, Jesus was just that, right? A baby. A baby full of promises, to be sure. But at that point, just a baby. Jesus had not yet lived a full sinless life. Jesus had not, at that point, performed any signs or wonders. Jesus, at that point, had not preached a sermon. Jesus had not died on the cross. Jesus had not risen again. Jesus had not ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus had not sent His Spirit to the church. He had not done any of that. In a very significant way, when we're in our cars driving to church, we're heading for something that these, these shepherds did not yet have privy to. I mean, they might have understood there's some promises associated with this baby because that was a pretty big announcement that we just heard in the field. But they did not have the full revelation that you and I have when we're in our cars driving to the event. I'm guessing they didn't complain about the comfort of the chairs, right? They got, I don't know how long it took them to get from the field to the manger, but I'm sure they were like going, I don't really, we need more comfortable chairs in this service of worship. It's a little warm in here, a little cold in here. The sound, we have sound problems. And I, the people in this church, you know, their worship... All I'm hearing is the bleating of sheep. These sheep don't have good voices. They should bring, bring other sheep in because I know some sheep that really know how to bleat. They probably didn't complain. And I, again, I'm talking to myself first. You know, when I'm, when I'm on sabbatical and I go to another church or even in my own church and stuff's going on, I, I have to fight being a critic. Why are they saying it that way? You know, why are they standing like that? Why are they singing this song? What about the, you know, there's all this stuff, you know, that I'm going, I need to, you know, they probably were not complaining about the length of the message. Or, you know, how well things are articulated or this or that. I'm guessing they were so excited about seeing the baby, all that other stuff seemed to just fade away. Now, now don't get me wrong. None of this should be an excuse for us as a church to not be, have good chairs and good temperatures and good sound and, you know, think about our prayers and think about our sermons. All of that, I think, we should do the best we can. You know, we, we should pursue these things with excellence. When it got right down to it, they just wanted to look at a baby. Friends, if we can see Christ in either every or any element of worship, if you can walk away from this event with one true thought of Christ occupying your mind, just one, 
then that'll be sufficient for all of our needs. We read the psalm that we read in the worship call to worship. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. So earnestly I seek you. There are things getting in the way. There are things that are distracting me. But I'm here seeking you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know, I was thinking about this, you know, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's even here, it's a metaphor, right? He's, he's thirsty for God as if he's in a dry and weary land. And I, I was thinking, I, I don't know how you are, I, I can literally go days without drinking water. I'll play in an entire athletic, even at my age, I'll play in an entire volleyball tournament on the beach in the hot sun and not take a sip of water. And you know what people tell me? They say, that's not good. That is not good for you. And they're probably right. The fact that I don't feel thirsty doesn't mean I don't need the water. So you might be looking at this going, but I'm not really that thirsty for God. Well, that's a problem too. Don't, don't go give in to the fact that you're not thirsty. You need to drink the water anyway. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary there you have it, right? Another reference to the gathering, the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. I can identify more with that than with the water. And my mouth will praise you you with joyful lips and you come here it's a meal and you got to be able to you're looking on that table and you're there's got to be a morsel just a glimpse of God's glory through the cleft of the rock just give me a you know just a glimpse of it and in all of our, our our weaknesses and frailties and lack of ability to put together the perfect liturgy we are praying, Lord, just show me a glimpse from the cleft of the rock. Verses 17 and 18. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which they were told by the shepherds. They were told by the shepherds. These uneducated, not officially ordained shepherds apparently couldn't keep to themselves. It's been said that silence is wise if you're a fool. But it's foolish if you're wise. Or someone else once said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. This idea that there are people who you know and love who you probably should be saying things to and you're not. There should be people you're praying, praying for. And then when you see them, you're looking to the answer to prayer when you say words. 
Now this, this idea, you know, the, when they made known the saying, that is the same, that's the same word in the, in the Greek as this thing. In other words, they were letting the words of God known. They were bringing the words of God out. They heard something, and they just couldn't keep it to themselves. The Apostle Paul said, woe, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I think we all need to find a little bit of that in ourselves. There's got to be a little bit of, woe is me if I'm not ready to convey the message of redemption. Later in this gospel, 645, Luke's going to write this. The good person out of the treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What, what is it that you hold such a strong conviction for that you can't help but speak of it? You know, there's certain people that I know, and I'm not going to, again, I don't exclude myself from this, that just can't help talking about certain things. Or they're kind of quiet, but when you bring this topic up, they're ready to talk. What, what is it that is in your heart, and it's just bursting to come out? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. On a number of occasions, the Apostle Paul, and we, we, talk, we say this every, every Lord's Day when we get together, you, you know, that which I received, I delivered. I delivered that which I received, right? We say that in the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11, he says that. It's this idea that he's receiving it and he's giving it away. He's receiving it, that's what I received, I'm delivering. Are we just a dumping ground for the gospel? Is that what we are? Storage unit for the gospel? Or are we a, a channel? Are we a, a river? Living waters, as it were, where they, they come through you unto others. Living, living waters, by the way, is kind of a big deal in the Bible, this idea of living waters. Well, you might want to just uh, examine yourself to see what is it that I'm always ready to say? And why is that on the, on the very tip of my lip every time? What, what else is going on? You know, what is being baked in my heart, so to speak, that when the oven opens, that's what comes out? I remember when I was in college, I was a, I was a high jumper. Hard to believe, huh? I barely make it up these stairs. And I had been a Christian for about a year or two. And this high jump is you run and you jump over this bar, you know. And I was, I was a Christian and I was, a per, I was pretty good. I was a pretty good high jumper. The college, college newspaper wrote a story about me. And, and I, there was a picture of me and I had a ichthus on, you know, the, 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 the Christian fish symbol. And so here I am, a Christian high jumper. But I had this habit when I would miss... I'd jump, and if I felt myself hit the bar before I landed in the pit of blurting out 
an expletive. <laughs> Without a, it, it, was, it went right from my lungs to my mouth, right? Without going through my head or heart or whatever. And I remember talking with the guy, you know, who was discipling me at the time, and I'm like, Tom, man, every time I miss it, I yell this word out, and immediately he's like, it's probably who you're hanging out with and what you're spending your time doing. What, what is just ready to come out of your mouth? Because that's a good way to evaluate where you're dedicating yourself, your time, your thoughts, your efforts. Well, they're out there kind of going, look at there's some, the, the shepherds, we can't help. We're going to make this known to everybody. And it says that the people marveled. Well, that does, by the way, the, the fact that they marveled doesn't necessarily mean they received it in faith although that would be the desired end, right? Sometimes, I, I say that because sometimes we're out there saying what we believe God wants us to say, and people don't seem to be marveling. And so it, it, we're dissuaded to continue. But you have to understand this. If, if you are a flowing river... That river, when that river goes down, you know, the water going down the stream, some rocks, some rocks it cleans, and some rocks it dislodges. But whatever the rocks are doing doesn't stop the river. The river has got to keep on flowing. Like it's been said, no matter how many coyotes howl at the moon, the moon just keeps rotating around the earth. The moon doesn't get up there and go, well, coyotes, you've hurt my feeling. I think I'll stop. The Apostle Paul, I think, put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I thought that was just an amazing statement. I don't have time to dig into it right here. But he's kind of going, there's a, there's a parade of triumph. Now, if you were around in the first century, you might be going, what kind of parade is this? Because it doesn't really look like you've got a lot of people. Isn't the Rose Parade? Nobody's, nobody seems to be cheering, right? But Paul's position was, we are in a triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So this parade is going down and the the knowledge of the gospel is going out like an aroma. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. He's like, this is the way we smell to God. It's the aroma of Christ. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It's like, well, the same aroma is going to God. The same aroma is going to those who are saved. And the same aroma is going to those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. In other words, he's going, for some people, we smell like death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. For others, I mean, that message is life. Then he finishes, and we don't have time to get into it, who is sufficient for these things? Well, apparently the shepherds were. Verses 19 and 20. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So we see two, but really three, I mean, if you include marveling, four responses. The shepherds now, we're told, they returned. I'm guessing they returned to shepherding. It doesn't say where they returned to. I'm guessing they're like going, okay, we got, got a job to do. We got to get back to our lives. They glorified and praised God for all that they had heard and seen. You know, their, their part of the story is over. We're not going to read about the shepherds again. They're done. They, get to, they got all the way into chapter 2, and that's it for them. But I think it's safe to conclude that their lives will never be the same. Right? They, they were changed forever. Sometimes we ask, I'm on a committee in our presbytery where we interview um, young men who want to be pastors, and one of the questions we sometimes ask is, uh, does a person need a conversion experience? And that's, to me, I don't ask it that way. I think it's a little bit of a trick question because I think everybody needs to be converted, you know, because we're, we're conceived in sin, so God needs to somehow rescue us and bring us from death to life, whether it's in the womb or as a baby or as an adult. But the idea that, you know, a lot of people have a conversion experience, I was one of them, this idea that I wasn't raised in a Christian household, I heard the gospel, somebody made, made it known to me, and I went from, from death to life, and there was a, I, I have a vivid memory of, this is different, my life, I'm a new creature, I'm a new person. But a lot of the people, a lot of people in this church, young people, don't ever remember not believing. They, God may have saved them as a baby. God may have saved... They, there are a lot of people who go, I, you know, I've heard people give this testimony. I don't ever remember not believing in Jesus. But that does not mean that they cannot have the experience of the shepherds. A highly significant experience. I don't even know. The shepherds might have already been believers. It doesn't say they went from unbelief to belief, right? A conversion experience, I think, is a, is a wonderful thing, but it is not the only way that God makes a significant impact in our lives. Sometimes it requires some effort on our part. Sometimes we have to do something. To, to be sure, okay, let me just give you a couple of biblical examples. There are times when we are so weak and feeble and faithless that God just does what God's going to do with us doing nothing, right? I mean, the, the Red Sea, right? The armies, you know, Israel is at the Red Sea. The armies of Egypt are kind of bearing down on them. And the response of the Israelites, even though they'd already seen all these amazing things, was they look at Moses and they're like, oh, were there not enough graves in Egypt? We have to come out here and die in the desert? Wow. Not exactly, you know, a pillar of faithfulness, right? And what does God do? Splits the Red Sea. I mean, even amidst their weak, faithless, grumbling, stiff-necked hearts, God goes, walk across. 
But then, but then there's the Jordan. We don't, they don't make as many movies about the Jordan. So you have the Jordan River, and you've got now, it's not Moses, it's Joshua. And now they've got to cross the, the Jordan, and it's flowing. So can anybody tell me what they had to do in order for the river to stop flowing so they could walk through? Yeah, they had to stick their toe in the water, right? You need to stick your feet in the water. You stick your foot in the water, then I'll stop it. Sometimes you got to do something. You want to have a Bethlehem experience? You want to go, Lord, I just feel like my Christian faith is so routine, it's so mundane, it's so listless and lifeless. I want to I want the experience like like the the shepherds had. All right. They had to go. They had to go to Bethlehem. We have a a group of young people in our church stand up here a number of months ago and talk about how they served at the Boardwalk Chapel. And as far as I could tell, every one of them were, were raised either in our church or Grace Carson. You know, they were all believers as far as they probably all could remember. But they got up and shared about how God did some amazing things that I'm sure they'll never forget. But they had to go to Bethlehem. Well, Jersey. (laughs) If you desire to have a life that very naturally, if I can say it, organically yields glory to God and praise to his name like the shepherds had, friends, you may have to put your toe in the water. You know, ships that stay in the dock, they just collect barnacles. You, know, you can't steer a ship that's not moving. Now, I don't know what it is for you. We have a ministry fair coming up. Maybe you ought to show up at that, get the ball rolling, okay? What do I need to do in order for me to be in a place where God is using me, where God is revealing, where I'm like utterly dependent upon God for this next thing that's going to happen? The shepherds return glorifying and praising God. To glorify God means to magnify God, to extol God, to, to lift him up, to ascribe honor. They're like going, our understanding of God is elevated. And praise, it said they praised him. Well, you know what? Just earlier, it was the heavenly host that was praising them. Now the shepherds are praising him. I bet it didn't sound quite as good. But you know what? I bet it didn't matter. Make a joyful noise. Mary, we'll finish with this, had a different response. And this gets me back to my elder friend. Remember I talked about him a little while ago? We are told that she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Some versions, some of your versions will say she treasured up these things. That's what that word kept means. It means to preserve, protect, to keep, to close, to keep it in good condition. You're like, this is, this is, these things are valuable to me. This is a treasure to me. I remember speaking with this young lady. Who is a, she's an adorable young lady. 
and doesn't, doesn't go to our church, so don't try to guess who I'm talking about. Adorable young lady, strong in the faith, just somebody who I just thoroughly have always enjoyed. And somehow we got onto the Gilmore Girls. And I'm not saying this young lady didn't know her Bible, huh? but she knew everything anybody could possibly know about the Gilmore Girls. I would never even watched an episode. But she's talking to another kid going, yeah, that was episode two. It was the season, season three, episode two. And I'm like, I was astonished <laughs> that she would know that much about that show. But this should be the goal for us when it comes to the Word of God. Mary here, this idea of keeping it, treasuring it, holding it, it may have been her application of Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's like, it's in here. A treasure. It's a treasure to me. So you got it in there, right? But then it says something else. And, then, and she pondered. You know, when we use that word ponder, I'm, you know, I had to take some time and go, okay, what does that mean to ponder? Because when I, you know, when I think of pondering, sometimes I'm just, it's like zoning. You know, like I'm pondering the clock right now. and Not really giving it a lot of thought. I'm just kind of, you know, looking at it. But that's not at all what this word means. That's what my elder friend, by the way, was doing when I asked him, what are you, what's going on in your head? And he didn't say, well, I'm pondering. But when he explained to me what he did, I realized when I studied what Mary was doing that that was a very similar thing. It literally means, it's a compound word, ponder, sumbalo, it means to throw together. Balo means to throw. I remember when I was taking Greek. You, remember how, you know how I remembered? Balo meant throw? Yeah, because you throw a balo. That's, that's what I had to do in order to remember stuff. This idea of throwing it together. Mary, what Mary was doing when she was pondering this was combining all of these things in her heart with, as it were, a holy fascination of how they all work together. She, it was like this idea that this is happening and that's happening and this is happening. And she's like going, I'm, I'm, this is all coming together. Our confession, speaking of the scripture, highlights how it contains, and I quote, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. See, what I think Mary was doing was she was meditating upon the consent of all the parts. This all is working together. Remember, we had established that even though she was young, she knew the word. See, the Bible is not some discombobulated, random collection of stories. Looking through the many facets, if you will, of a diamond, when we look at the Word of God, we can look at it through all different angles, but we draw this conclusion, there's one author, 
and there's one message. It all goes down to that. I would argue that most bad theology, I know for me, most of my bad theology was due to my inability or unwillingness to look at things through the full counsel of Scripture. We don't develop our theology with one verse on the fridge. Right? You've got to begin to put it all together. We don't just grab it here or there. It, it works together. Have you ever noticed that the more you read your Bible, the more it seems to say? Like you read it, then you read it again, then you read it again, and you feel like, you're, boy, this is saying things I didn't realize that it said the first time I read it. It's because by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, it's coming all together. It all works harmoniously. One of my own, if you will, Bethlehem experiences was my first trip when I went and taught the underground church in China. So I go there, and I'm, I'm in a room. I'm standing in a room with a bunch of mainly men. I don't know, there were probably 30 or 40, and they, my understanding was they represented into the hundreds of thousands of church members because they'd have a church that would have 6, 8, 10, 15,000 people coming. And it was a very... Very intense event. I remember going to a church service, you know, and it was at a, because it was elite, you couldn't do it. It was the underground church, and it was in a um, plant factory, or a paint factory. And we, they pull me in, Lauren, is Lauren Leland and myself, and uh, they, they pull me in, and, and Zolfin, Wang, and this pet factory is empty. Just a bunch of buildings with that corrugated steel stuff, you know. And I'm like, well, where's the church? And they take us to the guy's office who owned it, who, by the way, was very much in danger, the sweetest guy imaginable. And they're like, are you ready to go to the service? And we're like, yeah, sure. And they walk us and walk us this big circuitous route. And all of a sudden, they take one of these big sliding doors and slide it open. And there were 6,000 people in that room. All the men on one side, all the women on the other, sitting on barrels in a church service that lasted six hours. And uh, we stayed there for a while. It was all in Chinese. My Chinese isn't, you know, all it could be. So we ended up back in his office after a while, and um, the service ended, and hundreds and hundreds of minivans showed up, and within about 11 minutes, the place was empty. They, don't, they didn't even know where they were going to meet on the morning of. It's a phone call, phone call, phone call. It's like they've got this, this method of calling people, and they don't stick around for donuts. All right, they, get, they do the worship, it's hidden, and they get out. And I'm in this room teaching the pastors of these churches who in every conceivable metric in terms of, of courage and, and faithfulness and sacrifice, I'm looking at these guys and in every way that I could figure it were superior to myself. Even, and I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to get in a Bible quoting contest with any of them. I couldn't start quoting a verse without everybody in the room knowing how it ended. So, why was I even there? Why did they want me to do this? Because this is something that they had not really worked out in, at the time. This was 20 years ago. It's getting better in China. And that is, they, didn't really, they knew all the verses, but they didn't understand how they all worked together. They didn't have a system 
of doctrine. They lacked a systematic, confessional grasp of the unity of the message of the Bible. And I have to say, you know, for me, I never want, I don't like getting on a plane. I don't like, it's hard for me to come here east of Crenshaw. I don't like, you know, I'm like, I have my little, if I were a hobbit, I would be like in the Shire. I'd never leave. But I have to, you know, all, you know, the times, and that wasn't the only time, but that, that time is something that I had to stick my toe in the water, and I'll never, ever forget it. And I'll tell you what, it fed my soul when I, when I looked and I, would, and, I, and I would hear them quote Bible verses. I'm like, these guys know the Word of God. And it, and it fed their soul when I helped them understand how it all works together. This is, these, these puzzle pieces, they actually form a perfect tapestry, a perfect puzzle. This is, I think, what was going on in the mind of Mary. She's like going, I'm putting it all together. Glorifying God, praising God, pondering the things of God. These are the, the godly and biblical responses in our worship of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to understand more and more who you are, what you have done, your call in our lives. We do pray, Father, that everything we learn would be added to everything we know. And when we learn something, if we come to realize that what we thought we knew was in error, that, Father, by your Spirit, we'd be corrected. That we might become that full person that you've called us to be. We do pray, Father, that by your Spirit and by your Word and by what we're doing this morning, this would be accomplished and that we would be a people who would have that joy and that we would ever extol your holy name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.